Hello, this is Pastor Trent. I want to welcome you to the Mountain Home Church, the Nazarene Sermon Podcast. We are thrilled that you are tuning in to hear sermons from our ministries here at our church. It is our hope that the Spirit of Christ would be present with you as you listen today. I do want to take just a moment to invite you to reach out and connect with us. On our website, we have a way for you to do just that. You can visit www.mhnazarene.org slash connect and fill out a very brief form. There's a spot to leave contact info, ask questions, and even to request prayer. Also, be sure to indicate that you listen to us through our SoundCloud podcast to let us know where you're listening. May the Lord be with you this day. Grace and peace to you. Good morning, church. It is so good to be here and to to preach the word today. Um, I'm curious what some of the, the, the most common rules or phrases were that your parents told you growing up. Um, Some of you are still kids and living in your parents' house, and so you're probably very familiar with these. Uh, Some that I remember from my childhood was don't get into the cookie jar, right? That was a common one. Uh, Or don't walk out into the street. As kids, when we heard those things, we thought that our parents were just trying to make our lives miserable, right? Like, why can't I just have a cookie? Why can't I play in the street? Those are good things. And the worst part, I think, that just got me every time was the re- their response when we, when we asked, why? What would they say? Because I said so. <laughs> yep, yep. It's not a good enough reason for me. As a kid, it seemed so unfair uh, that I couldn't go into the cookie jar, but that's because I thought, like I said, my parents just wanted to deprive me of those delicious baked circle-shaped things, especially during Girl Scout cookie season. Mmm. Love me some Thin Mints. When in reality, the reason they didn't want me doing that was because it was up high, and I was a small child, and they didn't want me falling off the counter, right? They didn't want me falling off and getting hurt in case nobody was around to help me. And then not being able to play in the street, that just seemed silly. Like, all the other kids play in the street. It simply provided more playing area, and some of the kids had basketball hoops on the side of the street. But my parents knew better than me that even though I could watch for cars, that cars didn't always watch for me. And we lived on a really busy street, so there's that. Um, But one of my mom's catchphrases, uh, for me and my siblings, I have four siblings, so there was five kids in the house growing up. Um, And when any of us started driving, her catchphrase when we would walk out the door was, watch out for idiots and don't be one. And we would just chuckle and respond with, oh, mom. It it was just so funny. But in all fairness, it was just a funny way of our mom teaching us to practice awareness of ourselves and others, right? Um, Kind of in a silly way. And she still says that when we leave her house as adults. Watch out for idiots and don't be one. So I decided that would be a good sermon title for today. Not really. But it could be, <laughs> and you'll find out why as I, as I go on. But before you start thinking I'm too crass to be preaching in church, uh, let's look at the word today from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Um, though, would you pray with me before we read the word today? Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts 
and our minds to how you would reveal yourself to us today through the reading of your word, we pray. Amen. As you're willing and able, would you stand out of reverence reverence for the reading of God's word today from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Look here. Today I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. If you obey the Lord your God's commandments that I'm commanding you right now by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments, his regulations, and his case laws, then you will live and thrive. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them, I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you right now. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and clinging to him. That's how you will survive and live long on the fertile land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. Speed to God. You guys can take a seat. As a preacher, I'm going to be a little honest, preaching from the Old Testament is a little bit intimidating. Um, The New Testament, particularly the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I consider them low-hanging fruit, not just in the sense that they're not in the sense that they're easy because Jesus challenges us in some challenging ways, right? But because it's a little bit easier to connect to the person of Jesus. We have Jesus in the flesh in the New Testament, and so we can connect a little bit more seamlessly there. But just because the Old Testament texts require a bit more climbing to get to the fruit, that fruit is just as good, and I would argue just as important. Now, call me a nerd. Some of you already know that I'm a nerd. But the Old Testament is also pretty fun. Uh, I must confess, I enjoyed studying Hebrew in college more than I enjoyed studying Greek, which meant meant I spent a little more time studying the Old Testament during college than the New Testament. Not because the New Testament wasn't important, but I loved learning the Hebrew language and the history of the people of Israel. And it, it also helped that I had a fabulous Hebrew professor, Dr. Stephen Riley, who helped bring the Old Testament to life for me. Anyway, now that you know I'm a total nerd, uh, let's dive into looking at our passage. Um, To do that, though, I think it's important that we have a little bit of a deeper understanding of Deuteronomy as a whole. Um, We don't spend a whole ton of time in the Old Testament, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about why we have the book of Deuteronomy in our Bible. You see, the word Deuteronomy means second law. Um, And that's not because it's different than the law that God already laid out for the Israelites, but it's called that because it's Moses telling the Israelites the law a second time to remind them of their covenant with God. But also, Deuteronomy is an historical account of the month leading up to Israel's entrance into the Promised Land, a moment they've waited for for 40 years. I, I kind of like... I imagine it in my head, 
uh, sort of like when you take your kids to Disneyland, but you arrive before the gates open and you have to sit there and wait. And the little kid just says, can we go in yet? I even do that as an adult if I go to Disneyland, so get really excited. But at this point in Israel's history, Moses is also near the end of his life. These are some of his last words to the people of God. And so the Lord instructs him to give this speech to the Israelites, this pep talk of all pep talks, if you will, before they enter the promised land. I imagine it's a lot like a talk before a big game. Some of you that play sports know about this. Maybe your coaches give you pep talks. Um, but the coach likes to hype everyone up, right? Encourage the team. Though this pep talk isn't all hype. <laughs> Moses, who would be the coach in this case, uh, reminds Israel of all the ways they have lost before. <laughs> Not super encouraging. And then Moses reemphasizes the law of their covenant with God so that it's fresh on their hearts and their minds before they enter the promised land to remind them of the game plan, if you will. And then he gives them the option to win or to lose the game while knowing deep in his heart that they're probably going to lose. And then Moses dies. It's so sad. Not the most exciting pep talk, but so very important for Israel's history and therefore our own. And also very hopeful, even though it doesn't sound like it right now. A couple of, of major themes in Deuteronomy are covenant and politics. I know it's bad form for a pastor to talk about politics in a sermon, but I'm not talking about American politics, about parties and what party you follow, but I simply mean the way of life, the political ethics that God's people were called to because of their covenant. Israel's success and their longevity in the promised land rests on their choice to listen and obey the policies and practices laid out by Yahweh rather than those laid out by other imperial courts. When God made a covenant with Israel, God set them apart as holy for their purpose was to carry that holiness with them, making them different from other nations. The word holy literally means set apart different from the rest. And we often, I think, understand holiness as something that we can achieve, something that we can do and earn, but it's not that way at all. It's a gift from God when we choose to love God and to love people. The moment Israel fails to be that set-apart people of God is the moment that their holiness is put into question. Also, my favorite, one of my favorite parts about Deuteronomy uh, is what the Jewish community coined as the Shema, uh, which is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And it doesn't necessarily just mean to, to listen and hear, but it also implies a response to God. You've likely heard the Shema before, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And we know that Jesus brings this up again when he's talking to the people, right, in the New Testament. That that is one of the greatest commands. And this is the heart of the covenant 
that God made with the Israelites, that they worship God with all that they are, and that they love others in response to that love they've received from God. One writer that I read this week um, mentions that these laws, the ones that Moses is repeating for the Israelite people, are meant to preserve covenant and above all, preserve right relationship with God and with one another. If you just look over at that wall, our mission as a church body is loving God and loving people. That is the covenant that we make with the Lord. And then one more important note about this covenant uh, is the type of covenant it is. There's all kinds of different covenants um, that follow different models. Uh, There are many types of covenants, especially in the Bible as well, most of which are between a sovereign power and its subjects, uh, particularly after a nation is conquered. Uh, There's an act of dominance where the conqueror will say, you have to do these things now that you are my people. But God's covenant with Israel follows a different kind of covenant. It's what's called an international treaty covenant, which is known for its focus on mutual relationship rather than a dominant one. God has not conquered us. God has invited us. Yahweh's covenant with Israel offers freedom. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. And so while some might think that Deuteronomy and the whole Old Testament, for that matter, altogether is a trap filled with rules and punishment and violence, another major theme of Deuteronomy is actually God's desire for God's people to experience the good life. And that's where we get to our text today, Deuteronomy chapter 30. That first line, look here today, I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. Other translations of the Bible say life and prosperity versus death and destruction or life and prosperity versus death and adversity. And it's fascinating, I think, that Moses isn't confronting them in regards to their ethics necessarily, right and wrong, but rather a choice between a life that is good and its opposite, which is death and destruction. And though there are many areas in our lives, and yes, even in our faith, that that might fall into a gray area, the choice here is black and white. Life with God is good. Right even, if you want to take the ethics route. And life without God is no life at all, but a path to destruction. But what is the good life? This text begs the question, what does it take to have the good life? I googled that question, because <laughs> I thought, Google, has, Google sure, surely has the answer to this question. Um, and I was curious what might pop up when I asked the question, what is the good life? And the first search result was from MiriamWebster.com. And it defines, uh, at least in the U.S., the answer as the kind of life people with a lot of money are able to have. And the second definition was a happy and enjoyable life. That second one's not so bad. But I wasn't too shocked, sadly, because that is what we're conditioned to believe by an economic system that thrives on individual wealth and a society that promotes having nice things. 
for the Israelites 3,000 years ago, their beliefs of what the good life, good life, were, might have been similar to what ours are, but what Moses was setting before them was what the good life was always intended to be, a life with God, which is the only truly good life. And so the decision seems so clear, right? So simple, what we would call a no-brainer, like who wouldn't want this good life that Moses is offering on God's behalf? But as we know all too well, as fellow humans, the decision to walk toward other gods, toward earthly pleasures, wealth, power, and so on, is just as easy, if not just a little easier sometimes. But why? Why is it so easy to choose destruction and what is wrong rather than what brings life and what is good? Why? It's mind-boggling. But I think it's because the things that lead to death and destruction are often veiled as good things, when actually they're just temporary things that offer temporary pleasure. In some sense, since the fall, humanity has always lacked the ability to determine the long-term effects of our choices, sometimes even the short-term effects. <laughs> Especially here in America, I think we feast on this idea of instant gratification when our life isn't instantly better or easier after saying yes to God, we convince ourselves that it's a sham. Like, why shouldn't saying yes to God offer me instant pleasure and happiness when I can have my iPhone upgraded in five minutes? <laughs> to drive that point home, the reason that the Israelites are even wandering in the desert for 40 years was precisely because they expected God to make their lives instantly better. They wanted to go back to Egypt to be slaves. I don't know why. I think God delivering them from slavery was making their lives instantly better. But they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was comfortable for them. It was familiar. And they didn't trust God and trust God's promise to them to deliver them. It was taking too long for them, if you will. And unfortunately, they didn't totally learn from that mistake. <laughs> Moses knew that they would turn away again. Just 15 verses later in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, um, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Soon you will lie down with your ancestors. In other words, you will die. Then this people will begin to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods in their midst, the gods of the land into which they are going. They will forsake me, breaking my covenant that I have made with them. And that just makes me heartbroken for God, this God who loves them so dearly and has held them for so long. And I don't know about you, but I just want to like bop Israel on the head and say, what are you doing? Like, take them and just shake them and say, stop. But then I remember that I've been just like them. Maybe we all have, or maybe we are still. We see something shiny and seemingly better than a life with God and become distracted and wander further and further away. It's just 10 more minutes of sleep instead of reading my Bible. It's just a TV show. It's just one drink. 
just one pill. It's just business. It's just sex. It's just gossip. It's just whatever. But you see, a lot of little steps in the wrong direction can take us pretty far down the wrong path, sometimes before we even realize that we're lost. We grasp on to these instant boosts of happiness, not realizing the damage that it's causing our hearts and our minds. And I know I've spent a lot of time talking about the bad, <laughs> the doom and gloom. In fact, some preachers might even start to talk about fire and brimstone at this point, but that's not what I'm going to do today. In fact, despite what many may think, our text today, these words from Moses actually offer a lot of hope, not just for the people of Israel, but for us as well. You see what Moses laid before the Israelites, this choice between life and what's good versus death and what's wrong, on God's behalf, was in fact a choice. Just like God's first chosen people, Israel, we have a choice to choose life. Because God is first and foremost loving, he does not strong-arm humanity to be in relationship with him because that wouldn't be loving. And that's the freedom we experience in life with God, the freedom to experience life not out of obligation, like those nations that have been conquered by other kings who are forced to bow down, but because we accept the invitation of our creator. I love the way one author puts it, Stephen Green. Um, it's a Wesleyan comment commentary. He says that we are co-creators of our stories. When we choose to listen and obey God's command to love with all that we are, we are part of a lifelong, literally eternal, narrative of relationship and belonging. But when we don't, we become part of a counterfeit narrative, one that claims that it's good, but actually ends in death. You see, the promised land, that paradise on the other side of the Jordan River that the Israelites have waited so long for, was filled with other nations, uh, ones that worship many other gods already. They already had practices and customs. And so what was ahead of the Israelites was the temptation to join them and forget the faithful God who delivered them and who always keeps his end of the covenant. Like I said earlier, a good sermon title might be Watch Out for Idiots and Don't Be One. Watch out for temptation and don't be the fool that gets duped by these other gods. But an even better title for today's sermon and a challenge to us is to choose the life that is truly good. See, in many cases, when we were little and our parents told us those rules uh, or they set these parameters, it wasn't to threaten us or to keep us from experiencing the good life. We all know that as adults now. So this is a word from the wise to the young people. <laughs> it was to ensure that we could experience good things, right? The words from Moses to the Israelites from God we're that very same thing. God isn't threatening people with death and destruction. That's not who our God is. But God is warning the people what will happen if the covenant is broken. I'm going to have another nerd moment. When it comes to grammar and English uh, and syntax, 
I'm one of those people who, if I know you well enough, I will correct your grammar. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I'm so sorry, but it's true. Um, don't be offended. It's just who I am. But when we look at the, the structure of that first line in our passage today, life and what's good versus death and what is wrong, there's an important little nugget that we miss if we don't look a little closer at the syntax, at the Hebrew words there. Sorry. See, the words life and death are written in future tense, referring to the eternal outcome of our choices. But the words good and wrong or prosperity and adversity are written in the present tense, meaning that our choices don't just have eternal significance, but a present one as well. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Roger Hahn, uh, commented on this passage that our response of obedience or disobedience to God determines how life unfolds in the present. You see, God knows his creation well. God recognizes the struggle we face when it comes to choosing between the good life and the destructive one. And I think one mistake we make sometimes is believing that God has left us on our own to figure everything out. But when we read scripture and reflect not just on Israel's history, but all of human history, it's so evident that God is present in all times and all places. In the four verses before our text today, which I was tempted to read as part of our text, um, but I wanted to save it for now, Moses offers this encouragement from God. This is verses 11 through 14. He says, this commandment that I'm giving you right now is definitely not too difficult for you. It's not unreachable. It isn't up in heaven somewhere so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven for us so that we can get it and hear it and do it. Nor is it across the ocean somewhere so that you have to ask who will cross the ocean for us to get it so that we can hear it and do it. Not at all. The word is very close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart waiting for you to do it. I love that. It isn't unreachable, even when it seems that way. But how? How is the good life reachable? I don't have a lot of answers to a lot of things, uh, but I'm pretty convinced that the answer to this one is God's prevenient grace. Literally meaning grace that comes before. This grace is the unmerited and universally available reaching love of God. I love that song, Reckless Love, when we talk about how God chases after us, right? That is what this prevenient grace is, and it enables creation to choose God over and over again. In other words, prevenient grace is God's invitation to choose life. And some may ask in response to that, why is this grace not more obvious then if God wants us to choose him so badly? And my response to that is, why are we not more aware? <laughs> and that question is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. Why have we allowed ourselves to become so distracted by things that take our gaze off of Jesus? And the answer to that is different, I imagine, for every person um, and for every generation, right? We're distracted by different things. 
but we've all lost sight of God at one point or another, even if just for little moments or maybe it's been for a long time. But part of the beauty of being part of the community of faith is being able to help each other see and choose the good life, to discern together where and how God is working in our midst. I'd love for the the praise team to come back up and so we can respond in song in a moment. And while they do, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite parts about the Old Testament. You see, we don't meet Jesus in the flesh until the New Testament in the Gospels, which is much later in time, but Jesus is still very present and active from the start of creation. If you don't believe me, let me read the first five verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the word. And without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life. And the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. You see, this word, capital W, This logos in in the Greek is Jesus. It's referring to Jesus, the fully human, fully divine presence of God. And so in the Deuteronomy passage I just read to you moments ago, Moses reminds the people that the word is very close to you. That should send off light bulbs in your head because that word is the same word that John is referring to in his gospel. How cool is that? My favorite part, Jesus has not always been God in flesh, but Jesus, as well as the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, have always been ushering us into life. The word is life. So what this means is that God's gift and invitation to the Israelites to choose life is for us an invitation to choose Jesus. I don't know if everyone in this room uh, has made that decision to choose Jesus. I don't want to assume. Or if maybe some of you in the room have been wandering away for a while. But if, while we sing in just a moment, you feel led to, to make that choice, either for the first time or because you feel like you need to renew that choice that you made a long time ago, the invitation is open. And any of us on the pastoral staff would love to pray with you. Um, You can come to one of the altars and we'll meet you there and pray with you. But know that it doesn't have to be today. (laughs) If you'd rather do it one-on-one with one of the pastors, that's also okay. But the invitation has been given. So let's sing together in response today. Amen. I love the chorus of that song. All we need to say, that you are good. God is good indeed. Um, as, as we leave today, I'd like to leave you with this benediction. And in our congregation, we have a custom of holding out our hands as a symbol of receiving God's blessing for us today. May we, as God's chosen people, choose life, the life that is truly good, so that we may be kingdom people, 
and who love God and love people with all that we are. Go in the love and peace of Christ today. Amen. joining us today on the Mountain Home Church the Nazarene podcast. Don't forget to visit us at mhnazarene.org connect if you'd like to connect with us and have a great week.